Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Localization Fireside Chat. My name is uh, Robin Ayub, and I'm the founder of the Localization Fireside Chat channel. And look forward to our, our more and more episodes as we continue here with the uh, with the conversation regarding Localization Fireside Chat. I'm joined today, and I'm honored to have with me as a guest on today's episode, Kirill Solovyev. And Kirill is the co-founder and the CEO of Content Quo. I can't wait to find out a little bit more about this company. I've followed Kirill on LinkedIn on and on YouTube through his uh, previous interviews. And I'm looking forward to having a chat with him this morning. This is, again, two individuals in the localization industry who's passionate about what they do, having a conversation, a casual conversation on a Friday morning on March 31st in 2023. So we may as well date this episode. So when somebody looks at it down the road, they understand what date it was recorded. So excellent. I'm going to give the mic here to Kirill in a second to tell us his story. And on this channel, we always believe that everybody in the localization industry has a very interesting story. And I can't wait to hear Carol's story about how did he, where did he start and how did he end up in the localization industry? And maybe we'll understand a little bit about his personal life because that's always interesting to the audience as well. The mic is with you now, Kirill. Sure. Thanks, Robin. This is Kirill here, and it's a pleasure to be joining this video podcast today. So yeah, a couple of words about myself. It's my 21st year in localization. So I've been around for a while, but I still feel pretty young after meeting people such as Robin, who've been around for much longer. So I'm always humbled talking to, to someone like yourself. Yeah, about the company. So we started Content Quo back in 2015. All right. And I guess the, the way I describe it now is we are a professional company of pessimists in localization technology. So our premise is actually really simple. After being in this industry for so long, you know, for me, it's 20 years. For my co-founder, it's nearing 30. We, we figured out one simple thing. No matter how hard we try to do everything perfectly, there will always be something wrong with the translations that we buy or that we sell or that we produce. So this is kind of the, the core on which content quo is built. If everybody and everyone will make mistakes sooner or later, you know, for better or worse, the very least thing that we should be doing is actually learning from those mistakes, analyzing them and trying to get better. So that's pretty much the founding idea for content quo. So those days we say that we make it easy for companies to learn from mistakes they make in their multilingual content. And we happen to do this with software. So it's a technology company. We have a SaaS tool that makes it easy for you, those kind of things. But the the starting point is actually quite funny because this brings me back to, to my origins in those industries. So I began localizing or translating things, just as you said before, Robin, some 20 years ago as a university student. And uh, after doing this for like six to seven months, I figured out that Actually, don't like translating that much. And then I joined a translation agency first as a software engineer, because that's, that's how I've been educated, right? So I have a computer science degree. And then I switched to project management. And then I also had the chance to review translations done by other people. And I said, hell yes, this is actually what I enjoy. So I enjoy going through somebody else's work, giving them feedback, you know, pointing out their mistakes, right? And many years later down the road, you know, that was one of the factors, I guess, that led to me coming up with the idea for content quo. So now we make it easy to give feedback to other linguists, easy to find mistakes and easy to learn from them. And that's pretty much how we how we started. So that's the story of content quo. 
Excellent. And you know what? You bring up a very good point because that feedback loop in the quality story, and we'll get into, we'll ask the, I'll ask you a little bit more background question in a second, but the, the feedback loop in the content story and, the incre- you know, increasing the quality in the content is very, very important because, you know, I don't know if you've been through this, but we've seen it before where you have revisers or QA individuals stating the fact that probably they don't like something and either without respect specificity, right? So, you know, you, you say you don't like it, but why is it that you don't like it? And how do that, imp- that, that improvement loop breaks down. And now the individual who originated the, the actual work don't have that feedback to say to the, to say the, you know, to themselves to be trained, to get educated, and perhaps to correct things in the process in the future. That feedback, my point is that feedback loop is very, very important to the individuals who actually did the translation. And if your company is providing that feedback loop, that's that's great to imp- for improvement of the entire quality for the entire industry. I mean, especially now with the introduction of technology, which we'll dive into it per- a little bit. Just to, before we d- dig into too much in the technicality of the work, if you don't mind, like, perhaps a little bit, a few words on where you're located, what do you do for fun, family, that kind of thing. Sure. I live in the beautiful town of Tallinn in Estonia, in the north of Europe. It's pretty cold out here for about seven, eight months of the year. Uh, but uh, luckily, we also have a way to compensate for that because in the summer, the the, the duration of, of the day is amazingly long. So this is kind of how we, we make do here in the north. So... Lots of things that I like doing, but I think playing music is probably the, the biggest highlight I, of my I life. I heard you're, you're, you're quite the rock and roll person. <laughs> many genres, Robin, many genres. I, I like to say that I dabble or I play many musical instruments and most of them pretty badly, to be honest. But I enjoy it so much when I do that, that I just, I simply cannot stop, right? So I've been playing guitars, I've been playing drums, I've been playing flutes. Most lately, my idea of fun is a banjo, but not just any banjo, okay? It's a four-string banjo, and I usually play Irish traditional music on that. So that's kind of what I do for fun. And hanging out with my kid, I have a son, he is six, he loves roaming around. So usually on the weekend, this is how I spend my time. Excellent. Well, good to know a little bit about your personal life. I mean, we all have two sides of our lives and we have the personal mm-hmm. life, which occupy, I want to say 50% of our, our life and the other 50% is work. I'm assuming in a balanced approach to work and life balance, one would hope. But I mean, we, we all work in the localization industry. It's not the case at all. In a lot of cases, it's not. Everybody I talk to, they tell me, you know, they spend a lot of hours in this industry. They spend, and, and this is mainly driven by individual passion toward this industry and you know starting with myself you know i you know i hardly meet anybody that tells me they're nine to five kind of kind of a work environment most people they do whatever it takes for their customers for their colleagues for the people that they work with dedication i guess it's it's, it's the title of our industry in a lot of cases so moving moving a little bit down the road of uh, talking about content quo so tell me a little bit who is your for instance what, you know what keeps you up at night what do you think the opportunity is and what do you hope to achieve? What's your five near-term goal and the long-term goal, I guess? Mm. I'll tell you a little story, Robin. So we, we we had this gala academy event earlier this year and it was like a series of online workshops around language quality management, which is which is our area of expertise, right? 
And we had a little like forum to complement the the online workshops and discussions. And uh, I've met there one guy that I've known for a really long time, and uh, he works for Microsoft. Okay, so she's one of the quality leads at, at Microsoft in in Dublin in Ireland. And one thing that he said it very succinctly describes what we're trying to solve. They're still using Excel spreadsheets to run their processes around uh, translation quality management and feedback loops, right? So as a company, Quantico exists to help this industry get rid of Excel spreadsheets specifically for this purpose, right? So that's kind of how we started and this is why we exist it's not the only thing, but it's still a very important thing. And as long as there are huge companies and large localization teams still shuffling files by email and copying and pasting data, we've got work to do at Content World. So we're trying to automate the, the ubiquitous Excel spreadsheet away, long story short. Excellent. And uh, so for me, you know, every business has an objective, obviously, and to solve the problem, that's one. But there are business objectives, for instance, for many, many companies. You know, I would like, you know, if I was a business owner, probably I'll have like a five-year plan and a and a 10-year plan, etc. Hmm. How far do you think, is, is this the only product you have? Do you feel like there are more products to be developed in that area? What's the What's the future look like from where you are right now, from where you see it? Great question, Robin. So, we initially started from one product and, and we launched this to market back in 2018. So that that was kind of the replacement for the Excel spreadsheet kind of thing. It's still our flagship product, you know, so many years later down the road. And uh, we've added three more products on, onto the same platform, right? So kind of been plugging different gaps when it comes to language quality management and how to automate that at scale. So we first started the product to assess machine translation output. That was kind of our number two. Our number three was reporting and analytics. So helping people get insights about how good or bad their translations really are. And uh, now we're launching number four. This is coming up, wow, next month, right? April is almost here. So we have a big product launch coming up in April 2023. <laughs> Turns out that it's pretty hard to strategically invest your budget for language quality assessment, right? So that's now what we're trying to automate, give teams larger returns, especially at the times when budgets are you know, either flat or being cut, when headcounts are going down, right? So we're trying to kind of give them the, the best way to get returns on their investment into quality. So that's the strategy that we've been pursuing, kind of starting from one core and then adding like adjacent products covering more parts of the problem. Later on, the several strategies that we could pursue, but I think ultimately for us is finding the next area where the, the language quality learnings are relevant. Mm -hmm. uh, large language models are all around us as we speak. So GPT-4 yeah. has been launched, you know, several weeks ago while we were at Gala. People were reworking their presentations like during the night before <laughs> they had to go on stage. This is remarkable. And uh, yeah, like if you ask me, this is probably where our biggest opportunity is, is coming from. Actually, my engineering team did a little demo, like an internal demo for us today. They already plugged in GPT-4 into our products and we've identified several more ways of using it so yeah leveraging the power of ai same as anyone else but also maybe uncovering other edges and areas to localization where the approach or the method can be useful that's how we're going to grow so you know you've got a very good point to real you know our industry is a mix between predominantly you know a a generational i want to say 
you know, people who are been around for many years, they've been in the industry since, you know, and they've seen a lot of changes. I mean, I've talked to senior translators that have been in the industry for 30, 40 years. They've seen the industry go from typewriters to, you know, what it is right now. We're talking about GPT integration into, into tools. And, and, you know, you bring a very good point. You know, when you're used to, as an individual, as an industry, to do things in a certain way, change becomes an, a very big obstacle and a question mark because we all become aware of what's behind and we want to discover what's behind the bend, if you will. You're going straight on the road and then there's a bend. We need to understand what's going on behind that technology before we truly adopt it. So the adoption rate or the adoption length of any technology in our industry tend to be a little bit longer than any other industry. And, you know, you've got a very good point. I mean, your, your engineering team, you know, over... Overnight, almost, they plugged GPT into your tool and they discovered an opportunity. That's a very interesting point because creativity now, it's going to play a role of how we develop products, how we develop services in using the new technologies that they're coming to the market. And the, the technology march is not going to stop. It's always going to move forward. It's if we, we have two options as an industry, either we move along with the industry, with the technology and either adopt, create opportunities, seize the potential, or just say, you know, cross our cross our arms, say, okay, I'm not going to do anything, which we all know what that means. I'm not going to say it on this channel. You know, you either do or die kind of a scenario here, but because if the world is advancing forward and you're not doing anything, that means you're going backward. As, as a company, as an individual from a learning perspective, and that's why this channel has been created initially is to, A, from an education point of view, bring those innovative ideas forward. And I'm, and I'm not asking any, any of my guests to give us the exact secret for the recipe and how would they put it together. But those ideas are very fundamental to advancing the industry in, in general, is to, to emphasize the creativity, to create potential from an up new technologies and how we use technologies and to solve problems. Because if you look around in our industry, there's tons of problems that perhaps technology can solve it to for us. And as you mentioned earlier, there was some of, you know, some of the translation companies still using Excel sheet to move data around or to analyze data. There's got to be a way, nothing against Excel. Excel is a great tool, but there's got to be a better way to be a lot more efficient in the way we handle things. And the third point you answered in your, in your, in your, in your, and when I Ask the question, is that whole budget thing. As revision and quality becomes the end of the line in a process before DTP and before a few other things that takes place before we deliver back to the and as you know, it's becoming more of a, a sandwich, I would call it. You know, you're you have your own cost to be aware of, and you have a, a budget as much as you know the price that's this the service is being sold at. And that price is not going up in some cases, in some cases a flat, in a lot of cases it's going down, you know. That is causing a bit of an issue on your side. So I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know, but I mean, you, you, you come, if you were in a, in a, in a situation where you constantly need to, you know, adjust the cost on your side to produce these services in a profitable manner, because every business is in it for profit. I, I get it. I mean, why would anybody in our industry get into any business, get into business? for no profit. Why would you do that? You have to make some money at the end of the day. How do, how are you managing this, you know, that cost pressure? Yeah, great, great thinking, Robin, and a great question. So our technology is used quite a bit by LSPs, actually. So we work with the global top 10, the global top 100. So we see also the, the, the seller side of the services industry. And of course, we try to help. Since we come at this challenge from a quality perspective, I guess what we usually try to bring to the conversation is is something like this. Okay, 
with a fixed budget? How can you invest it in a smarter way in order not to increase the risk of poor translation quality reaching the customer, right? So this is actually what our product number four that's launching in April is going to be helpful for LSPs for, right? So it can help them optimize their production workflow based on the different, as we call them, risk variables and risk modeling that we're doing in the product so that hopefully they can redirect kind of the extra production steps like revision or QC or whatever to the, the parts of their content stream where they matter the most. And, you know, whether it's client-based or language-based or, you know, technology-based, any combination of factors that helps them is also their production costs. Mm-hmm. In this in this age of cost pressure, without putting the quality of the delivery at risk, so this is kind of how we help the LSP side of this industry with the upcoming product. Excellent. And so, you know, you mentioned technology earlier. I'm assuming some of your customers are sending you machine output, and and how is that? Do you see a difference a between a machine output versus a human output, and then there's the hybrid output that you mm-hmm. probably have to contend with? So, if you were to analyze what you're receiving to do an LQA on, are you seeing any difference between those three categories, human, hybrid, and pure empty? And how are you dealing with those? I'm going through my mind now and thinking, okay, which of our customers actually use our platform to assess empty and hybrid and and human? Two things here. So one, I think the majority of quality assessments going through the Quantum Pro platform don't really care how the production was done. Okay. And in this way, I actually don't have a good answer for you because this is the right way to do quality evaluation, right? You do not look into how production was done, but rather you do an independent audit or a blind test if you want, and then you figure out the results. And from this perspective, it doesn't seem like using MT as part of a hybrid workflow has any major or systematic okay. impact on the on the output. By the contrary, right? It's it's you know on par with a pure human workflow. Machine translation has been properly deployed, all right, and people yeah. have been trained, <clears throat> and the production system has been set up accordingly. Now, this said, there's also a second consideration because some of our customers use the platform to assess the engine output, kind of the raw machine translation. And this is where we get to see, you know, a little bit more insights, for example, through our reporting product, right? We call it Quantum Pole Analyze. So the, I'm probably not going to add much new insights here, but basically the fluency is really high across all the language pairs and across the different engines. The accuracy is really case dependent, whatever. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you on the accuracy, Kirill. Yeah, on the accuracy, do you see a difference between language combination? Is there language combination are more accurate than others or no, no such? There are certainly some differences, Robin, also since we have basically per customer deployment, they only send kind of the same content types, right? So many variables for us, when we see this data internally, they're fixed. So I can't speak for the entire landscape of all sure. languages and all content types, but yeah, there is a difference. And I think the accuracy difference is, is much stronger between the languages and the fluency differences those days, right? I have some you know, examples also from my personal life. So Estonian is actually a notoriously hard language to machine translate. And uh, some of the larger players, like a company called Meta comes to mind. 
are really having trouble with their Estonian machine translation those days. Unfortunately, it's so small, they're probably never going to fix it because the priority of the Estonian <laughs> language is just, you know, it's somewhere on page 17 of you know, their quality dashboards, right? So it's a bit unfortunate, but that's a fact of life, right? Some languages do perform significantly less well than the others. So this is why you evaluate. You that's want right. to know how it's going on for your content, for your mm -hmm. writers, right? For your target markets, for your tone of voice, whatever. Trust, but verify. This is our Correct. corporate motto here at Content Quo. Trust, but verify. I like that. Check it out yourself. Get some data yep. in the smart and reliable way, right? And then make a decision that you need to make around it. So, you know, you, you bring a very good point is those systems are highly de dependent on the amount of data that is involved in a specific system. And, you know, you take a, a language, as you said, you know, Estonia or some other minor languages, not because of it's just because of the amount of people speaking that language, which creates the amount of data that we need as a system for systems to be able to analyze it accurately. You know, if you were to rank, for instance, English, French, German, Italian, and, you know, Chinese, the two variations of Chinese, etc., those languages have a large amount of data associated to them. And I think the likelihood, the opportunity to get a little bit more accurate in a revision, in the revision or the LQA process is higher than a minor languages i think that's what you're driving to Pretty just much. a yeah just a one more on on the on the on the uh, the way you're set up so one would assume anybody can go to your platform and you know and just interact with you through your through your website is that a self-serve model is it a more of a a custom solution that you provide how, how does how do customer engage with you i guess that's where i'm getting at mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you can definitely go out to the website and i actually suggest you do i think the the latest product we're launching the the content will plan this automatic quality investor it's quite an interesting concept right so we feel it's it's novel so maybe go and check it out we feel that language quality is actually pretty difficult to get started with and this is why we don't do self-serve at all in this company robin so uh, since it's uh, it's a little bit of an underdeveloped area of the industry i guess we just found there's so much variation across different teams that we talk to and also between the buyers and the vendors in this industry that we actually prefer a more handheld approach where we work really closely was was the teams interested to optimize their process on how to get them there and what are the right products for them at each stage in time, even how to set up the process around, you know, language quality assessment in a smarter way, if required. This other platform is actually pre-built, right? So it's definitely not a custom solution. We have those four core products. They're highly configurable and highly flexible. So that's pretty much what we do for every client engagement. We just tailor or set them up in order to meet the workflow, the 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 methodology, and many, many other different things. So that's kind of one big learning from us building this product in language quality one size does not fit all so no. being flexible this is our internal mantra when we build it's actually really expensive to build a product in a flexible way but we've been doing it for years and i'm happy to say we probably have the most flexible product for this purpose on the market it's tough but it's worth it and and i want to emphasize a point that kirill said for the audience you know for those who have not built a product, what I mean, what we mean by product here is a software. It is a, a very difficult endeavor to take on. It takes money, takes resources, takes a lot of engineering. 
It takes a lot of dedication to build a that is full of features. And as you build software, the more you add features, the more it costs. The more you add flexibility, the more you're going to have to add programming. So you either spend the money on the programming front end or you spend it later by, you know, other means, maybe losing opportunities or, you know, losing customers or whatever the case may be. So it is a very tough job to build a, a software in an industry that is not necessarily as big as, you know, automotive industry or pharmaceutical industry. Our industry, if one compared to other industries, even though it's a $60 billion industry around the world, it is still a rounding error when it comes to other types of industries. So we're a small industry trying to do big things with a small amount of resources that in some cases available to us. So, you know, I hope everybody gets the appreciation when Kirill says, you know, I've built four version of the software or five version of the software. I'm adding a new product. This is not a flip of a switch kind of adding a product. It takes a lot of hard work, design, programming, architectural work to put something like this together that's full, rich in features, functionalities, and give the customer the flexibilities that they need to use it. So I just want to emphasize that point. It is, and, and, and for those who are contemplating building a software or have an idea to build a software, you know, start with, I would recommend, my recommendation is start with talking to experts. Talk to experts about how to build the software. You know, what do I need? Start putting the foundation blocks together, your architecture, your database, your features and functionalities, the end results that you hope to achieve. But put it on paper first before you dig into programming and start hiring programmers. On that note, tell me a little bit about your engineering team. Is that an internal engineering team or you outsource or how, how do you, and how many, how many employees you have as a company? Sure. So we're 15 people at the moment, Robin. This is a very interesting team structure, I guess, because this company never had a, a physical office. So since 2015, we've been fully remote and fully distributed. So now we have 15 folks across eight or nine different countries. I've actually never met the, the whole team in person <laughs> yet. It's been, we've been recruiting, you know, recently and there's still many people I haven't met face to face. Some people say, okay, it's the new COVID thing. For us, it's, it's completely different. This is, you know, this is work. It, we don't call it remote work. That's we right. just call it work. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, the engineering team's about half, half of the staff at the moment, also fully distributed as well. It's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting, right? So we've been talking about, you know, the, your appreciation for, for the complexity of building software. And I appreciate you saying that. I think many people maybe don't see deeply enough, but having a computer science background definitely helps you go into that. It was really funny because recently, I think a couple of weeks ago, I've actually accidentally found like very, very early design mockups for the first content core product that we made back in 2015. It's like they were literally the first six months of us just getting together with myself and my co-founder and a couple of engineers and really trying just to figure out what the hell we're going to do. And it was so interesting to see them eight years later, right? So some things are clearly, you know, very stupid. And I was thinking, oh, my God, how could have I designed it in this way? But interestingly enough, a bunch of others actually stood the test of time really well. And we're still using the same user interface patterns and the same flows. Uh, so what can I say, right? It's hard to get it right, but when you do, it's actually super rewarding. So for me, this is the best job I had in this industry in my 20 years. And, and it's a commitment. Else. I, I appreciate it's a commitment. that. 
Yeah, it's just commitment. You know, when you when you commit to invest and to spend money on an idea, that means you either like the idea so much and you are, understand it in a way that you're willing to put investment in this. For those, you know, who are employees watching this that's or, or entrepreneur watching this channel, that's where it all starts by an idea and some financial and, and, and effort commitment to get an idea going going forward. But you, I, you brought up a very good point because the idea, as you mentioned, evolved over time, Kirill, right? So, you know, you've started with things that you probably liked and fundamentally you know, thought those are great ideas and they proven over time because they proven successful and they proven that the usability of them, customers like them, you know, they return on investment was good with them. And there are some other ideas you're probably going to say, well, as you said earlier, what was I thinking? Kind of a kind of a thought. And, you know, for people who are perfectionists and our industry is full of them, and that's the industry we're in, we're all perfectionists. Don't be afraid of having you know, the mixture of good ideas and bad ideas. Obviously, you don't want to have all bad ideas, but you want to have some good ideas to get to carry you forward. But don't be afraid of making a mistake. That's I think that's the conclusion that you're that your answer on that on, on that topic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Robin, you're saying right through it. And this was actually for me personally, one of the hardest things I had to unlearn when we started to build this company. So having spent years in the corporate world, I'm a former localization director for, for a tech company. Okay. So like lots of pressure, large budgets to manage, you know, huge responsibility, big team, you know, all of that. And I had to unlearn this very, very quickly when we started to build this company from, from nothing in early 2015, kind of learning what the startup mindset is about. That was like the biggest adjustment I had to go through and uh, it's totally worth it. Right. So to this day, we're not a young startup anymore. It's a stable business. We're growing really well every year and customers seem to like us a lot, but we still try to kind of adopt the, some of the elements that we did back then. So make it okay for team members to, you know, try things and sometimes mess it up. And, you know, sometimes they do mess it up, but at other times, like today, they just sit down and like in four hours, they hack together, you know, a chat GPT integration for our platform. Like, you did what? Right. Mind-blowing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was actually asking them not to do that, Robin, right? So speaking to the generational gap that you touched upon earlier, my team's a bit younger, right? Like the engineers are maybe like 10 years younger than, than me. I'm 38, by the way, and like 25, 30, you know, some younger than that. They actually just, you know, they ignored me. They went ahead and <laughs> built it. And, you know, it works. It looks amazing. It's like, hell yeah, let's keep doing that. That's Maybe right. someday, actually, customers can get really good value out of it. So, yeah, that's a startup spirit that we still try to and, keep alive. And that speaks, and that speaks to the leadership. <clears throat> that speaks to the leadership style that you you exhibit in this scenario. And you know, it goes back to another discussion, and and it's an important one to have. Is in this industry, it's about leadership. Do you encourage creativity? Do you encourage motivation? You, you encourage, you know self-initiatives in, in any job, engineering or whatever job title individual may be working for you. Those self-initiatives that, that your team creates are the fundamental foundation, I believe, for any organization. And, you know, we talk about our business in a, in, in a lot of times in spreadsheets and in statistics, et cetera. But the foundation of our business is people. It starts with people. And, you know, we're very intensive in terms of number of employees this industry is for, for the right reasons. It's the nature of the industry, the way, the way we work, the 
type of work we do requires us to have different people with different skills to support different customers, so on and so forth. But we don't talk enough in this industry about the importance of individuals that runs an organization, that contributes to an organization. Personally, I have a deep appreciation to every team member that I've worked with, that I've met throughout my career, that I've helped develop through my career, either I hired, I trained, etc. And the story never ends on that front. You're always developing, you're always hiring, you're always training. Because some people come for, to us and many people come to us, they're drawn to the industry, they're not from the industry. People who are drift from one company A to company B, company B it's an easier time. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, I'm, um, I can talk about that topic for a long time, but tell me a little bit about your HR side of things. So how do you, in the remote and remotely connected world, and you're like me, you know, COVID, it was like a new situation for many people by going remote. I've worked on the road. I mean, you know, I started my career as a salesperson in this industry. I worked on the road all my life. So I worked pretty much from home all my life in the industry. So when COVID came in, it didn't really change much. I just had to fly less <laughs> from one place to another. Tell me a little bit about the human HR aspect of, of, of your business and how do, what's your view on employee, employee development, employee compensation? How do you stay connected in a, in a world that is pretty much operating remotely? Mm. Yeah, I think for us, like I mentioned, since we started as a remote company, surprisingly, we have it really easy because we didn't, maybe because we didn't have to rewire how we work midway. I think at this time, uh, the, the communication and interaction are just so natural that frankly, we don't have any special remote protocols, right? We, again, we just call it work. And this is why for me, it's actually really hard to teach that. So to share any of that, it's just like, I don't understand the question, really. Like, what are you asking about? <laughs> I don't have a way to explain what do we do for working remote because we just do it, right? Yeah, because it's uh, your nature, right? That's how you always worked. You did not have to transition. Way. Yeah, 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 there was no transition. And I think because the core team, and this is speaking to the HR side of things, Robin, the core team is is really stable. So we had like, especially the core engineering team has been with us since the very beginning or like early on, like maybe a couple of years down the road. This is why we have lots of continuity, but also lots of like personal growth that I have witnessed and hopefully supported to some extent over the years. So in 2015, we started basically with junior guys, like kids fresh out of college. And now they, you know, the guy that we brought in actually runs our engineering team. Okay, and he's responsible for shipping four products, making the team motivated and happy, rewarding them, you know, firing them if required. So, like, we have some really good blueprints into the team in the team how we got people from you know entry level roles to basically director positions. Even though the team is small, we've been able to offer lots of growth potential internally, and I guess this is what they enjoy, right? Because they're not not leaving, right? Fingers crossed. Yeah. They will yeah. stick around and, and see us get to the next level and support that as well. So that's kind of our story. I guess I'm very fortunate. I have a great co-founder. He's our CTO, and he's been working with younger people for most of his life. So he's really good at spotting talent really early, and he's been instrumental in us kind of having this ethos as as part of our team, how we kind of induct new talents, how we groom them, and how we let them grow into their next several roles with us, hopefully. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. That's how because we are doing this. 
Because I'm assuming most of your services are, most of your resources are dedicated to engineering. I'm assuming, you know, the project management type of things, the local traditional project management function in your environment probably doesn't exist or maybe exist to a lighter version not, of it? Not really. We don't have a need for project managers. Uh, on the engineering side, we have the engineering leads taking care of kind of the, the arrangement of things and sales and marketing. I usually am in the driving seats working with, with mm-hmm. my sales marketing people. And then we have some shared or joint areas as well. But no, we don't have a single project manager. And hopefully I will not live long enough to see us get one. <laughs> I think this is not what this particular company needs, right? It's a software company, right? It's not a service company. That's right. We don't sell any services at all. The only software sales that's that's content yeah. well, right? So yeah. it's a bit different from many companies. I guess listening yep. to to this podcast and and service as a, uh, software as a service. That's a SaaS model that you have. And if wondering if you offer on-premise software instead of a SaaS version, is that a we possibility? Do. We do. I think the architecture that that my business partner and co-founder has built up, you know, from the early days, mm-hmm. uh, we would say it's cloud agnostic. So we're actually not using any specific features of like Google Cloud or Microsoft Cloud, and this is why we can actually run in highly secure environment. Um, so you know, I'm thinking like companies working with intellectual property come to That's mind. Right. Governments or I don't know, like other IP intensive areas, right? Mm-hmm. So these are some of the customers we have that prefer an on-premise version, and it's easy for us to offer that. Any any certification that you might want to mention here in terms of the latest ISO security, cybersecurity one, info security, those kinds of things. Any any other certification you want to mention? Mm. We're working on our ISO and SOC certificates this year, actually, because we just feel it makes those type of conversations easier. I guess in our industry and in our line of business, the best certification you could get is a customer testimonial, Robin. So we tend to focus on on those. It's it's a fairly unique piece of software. And I think because the market is quite small, as you said, yep. this industry is, you know, it's pretty compact, right? And the word of mouth is really strong. So Absolutely. when we have something coming from the customer mouth where they say they like it, makes their life easier, that's the best certification that sure. we could get. So that's pretty much our focus here. And we're coming up on 45 minutes here, and I don't want to take too much of your time before we wrap up. I have one last question, and then we'll do a closing comments. In terms of, if you look at, I know I've read a little bit about your organization, and I've watched, as I said, mentioned earlier in our conversation, some of your videos. Would you say, for instance, your demographics from a customer perspective are LSPs or they're, you know, straight customers who are not involved in an LSP environment? And is this the right mix for you, or do you like to change that? Mm, great question, especially the, the question about the right mix, Robin. So at the moment, I think about 65% are buyer side teams. So those would be corporates and and governments for us. And then about 35% are LSPs, usually larger ones. So we tend to focus on the, on the global top 100, right? I think this is really the right mix for, uh, we really enjoy being able to support both the buyer and the vendor side of this industry because the software is ultimately helping them collaborate, right? So it's important for us to keep in touch with with both sides. And uh, sometimes we have interesting cases where we see both the buyer and their vendor looking mm-hmm. at the same, the very same content and its quality 
from two different perspectives, right? So this is a unique position to have. And I treasure that a lot. And I want to keep doing that, right? Because sometimes we find ideas for how they could improve just by seeing those two sides separately and, and comparing them, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the the value in this position, not being, you know, buyer only or LSP only. And I think we want to keep the kind of mix. But let's be honest, I think the buyers get to be in the driver's seat a little bit more often in this industry, especially with like larger corporates. And this mm-hmm. is historically why. And also maybe because of my personal background, I'm a former localization buyer, okay? Used to manage a, a seven-digit USD budget for localization services. So that's my personal ethos. That's the crowd I identify with. So historically, yeah. I guess it's been a bit more popular there. But that's kind of how we want it to be. I think this is the, the right the right place for us as a business. Excellent, Kirill. Any final thoughts before we close this uh Lovely discussion, by the way. Great to have you on the channel. You are welcome to come back anytime. Any final? Uh, thank you, Robin. Final thoughts. If you're looking for a new thing to do in this industry, try building a software startup. You'll learn a lot and you'll learn unique things that are really hard to learn either on the buyer or on the services vendor side of this industry. It's painful, but it's so valuable. I cannot recommend this enough. Ping me privately if you want some tips on how to start. Excellent. And good luck. Kirill. Thank you so much, Kirill. Thanks for the great interview. Thanks for the great discussion this morning. And hopefully some of our audience take something positive out of this discussion. That's the whole purpose of this channel. And I wanted to welcome you back anytime. I would love to have this update with you on a regular basis. I love, always love to talk to innovative entrepreneurs such as yourself. Hopefully we'll do a panel discussion. We will involve you at some point. I'd love to do that just to get the, you know, few sides of on the same discussion, more, more elements to the conversation. I'd love to do that. The next time I'm doing a uh, talk, we'll probably do a, a panel discussion. We'll, in, we'll interview several people on us on, we'll pick a topic that involves technology in our industry and see how can we debate it together. For those of you who are watching uh, this video, if you need to reach out to Kirill, please look him up on LinkedIn, Kirill Solaviv, and also check out contentquo.com if you want to find out a little bit more. And also for those of you who are watching this episode, like the rest of the episode will be available on YouTube. All you have to do is Google the localization fireside chat and you'll find us. Also will be available in a podcast format on Spotify. So thanks so much, everybody. Enjoy your Friday and take care.